Last time we got into Revelation 14, and I think we made it through the first five verses. Talked about the 144,000, and it is my belief that the first part of chapter 14, where you've got the Lamb standing on Mount Zion uh, with 144,000, I think that's a staff meeting. Basically, you've got a thousand pairs of witnesses or shepherds or whatever you want to call them for each of the nations in Genesis. And what I think their job is, is to go out and round up believers and get them all into one place where they're out or, or, you know, maybe 72 places. I don't know how many places there are, but get them out of the way of what's going to happen. So that's what I think is going on in, at the beginning of chapter 44. Because remember, the 144,000 got sealed back between the uh, 6th and the 7th seal, I believe. Yeah. And they've been doing stuff during the trumpets. And it's my belief, that, you know, maybe right, maybe wrong, it's just what I think, that between the end of the seals and the 7th trumpet, these guys are out gathering folks because the trumpets are the announcement of the coming of the king. And it would make sense then that his shepherds who are out there gathering his people would do that as the trumpets are playing. Again, am I saying that's what makes sense to everybody? So at the end of the trumpets, you've got this staff meeting that is on Mount Zion because Yeshua, I believe, returns at the seventh trumpet and that's when you have the resurrection. you got the 144,000 show up there. And we're now ready to go into the kingdom. And of course, the next set of events that's going to happen are going to be the bowls of wrath where the king takes vengeance on his enemies. Again, did I say all that so it made sense? Yes. You, have to, you have to believe you know it too, but just so I explained it reasonably clearly. Yeah. Well, again, if, if I'm correct on their mission, and it's certainly very possible they got some completely different mission that's that's possible, and if it is, then I don't know. But they've got to have time to basically fan out over the earth and get people rounded up and, and basically get them to whatever the equivalent of Goshen is. Okay, that, I think that's what they're doing. They're, they're doing the same thing that Moses did with the nation Israel in the Exodus, where he you know took all of the, the Hebrews and he packed them up in Goshen and then he turns his attention to the rest of Egypt. And I think the same thing is going to happen again. And I think it's the job of the 144,000 to do the, all right, this is Goshen for you, you know, wherever that happens to be. You go there and stay there because there you'll be safe. Okay. And we'll see as we go into the bowls of wrath, which we may get to tonight, the bowls of wrath look awfully like the plagues of Egypt. Okay. So again, what I'm suggesting to you is that the, the lamb standing on the mountain with 144,000 is, is them coming up and reporting, we got them all, and turn it loose, boss. That's my guess. But God knows and I don't. All I'm doing is inferring from Scripture. So, now we have the messages of the three angels. And that I'm now in Revelation 14.6. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth, 
every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give, give Him glory, because the hour of His judgment has come, and worship Him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Okay. So I absolutely agree. If you go to Matthew 24, 9, then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all the nations for my name's sake. And by the way, the tribulation here is not the tribulation that is coming from God. Okay. In other words, the bowls of wrath that are coming from God, this is man-made tribulation. Um, and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake, and then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray, and because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Now, you know, every radio evangelist, they will all say that it's our mission to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, and then the end will come, right? So what you're doing is by giving us money, you're buying radio time or television time or, you know, Pony Express time or whatever kind of time you're buying, and we're spreading the gospel to the ends of the earth. Very laudable, very noble. I think it's a worthy goal. That ain't what's being talked about here in Matthew 24. Okay, Matthew 24 is not talking about when everybody has got his own transistor radio and they all hear the gospel according to pick your favorite radio preacher, then we've done it. Okay, that's not what's being said here. What's being said here is back now in Revelation, verse 6, where we were, I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth and the sea and the springs of water. This is what's being talked about. This is God getting on the celestial bullhorn and saying, Now hear this. And he's going to do it in such a way that there isn't going to be anybody on the earth who is going to be able to say he didn't hear it. Okay? So what's going on here in Revelation 14 is what Yeshua is talking about back, back in Matthew 24. In other words, he is not live, leaving it to Adrian Rogers or E.W. Kenyon or any of these guys, although they are good preachers and I don't have anything against them. He is not counting on them to be sure that everybody has got the gospel clear and correct and precise. He's going to do that himself. Again, did I say that so it made sense? And as Ray would call it, this is constructive notice. In other words, okay guys, it's about to end. This is the last train. This is your last chance. Here's the last word. Everybody hear me? Fine. Now, everybody that didn't turn to me, here it comes. That's what's going on there. Verse 8. Back in Revelation 14, verse 8. Another angel, a second, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. 
She who made all the nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. Okay. We're going to see Mystery Babylon. We're going to see the woman who rides the beast. This is going to be elaborated later on. But in 25 words or less, the history of the earth and the competition between the people of the earth and the people of God is the people of the earth try to set up empires and they try and take the worship of God and turn it to the worship of men. Now, maybe the worship of men is in, as in a communist true believer or a Nazi true believer, or it may be the worship of a Caesar, or it may be the worship of a Pharaoh, but they always want to bring worship down to earth and away from God. Toward that end, they have state-sponsored churches. And the state-sponsored churches work with the empire and basically lend it spiritual credibility and depending on the time and depending on the style of the empire, the object of worship varies, but it always comes away from the one true living God and goes to something else. And it always is in support of the state and the empire. Okay, And God regards the worship of anything except him by his people as adultery. So when we're talking about Babylon the Great, who made all the nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, certainly that is talking about normal garden variety, boy and girl, or boy and boy, or girl and girl, or you know, whatever it is, sexuality, but it's also talking about false worship. Okay? He uses the metaphors interchangeably. And, and of course, false worship also then leads to human fooling around. That's one of the big attractions of false worship is because typically there's a hot time in the old temple tonight. I'm serious. You know, that's, that's where you go to have a good time. And it all, by the way, started in Babylon. That's the first recorded instance of this is in Babylon. So what he's doing here, I believe, is saying that this harlot, who is the leader of false worship, and the one who leads God's people away from him and into false worship, that harlot who started in Babylon has fallen, and I don't know what the incarnation of Babylon is going to be when this actually kicks in. It may be back at physical Babylon. It may be Babylon on the Hudson. It may be San Francisco. You know, I have no idea. It may be Shanghai. So what I'm saying is th- this locus of state churches that support the empire and give it spir- spiritual credibility while leading God's people astray goes throughout all of history. And I, as I, say, I, I don't know necessarily what incarnation this is. You know, there are people who try and get, get this to be the Catholic Church. Well, the Catholic Church didn't, was still, what, 300 years in the future when John wrote this. And certainly the Catholic Church has fulfilled that role, as has other churches. But what I'm saying is, people who try and you know, pin this on the particular incarnation that they dislike the most are making a mistake when they don't pop up and see it as a system-level thing. All right, verse 9. 
Another angel, a third angel, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, those worshipers of the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. So this is again legal notice. Empires basically assert ownership over people. And when you own something, you brand it. You don't get to brand your neighbor's cattle, you brand your own cattle. So when the empire asserts ownership, it brands people. And, and the brand may be you know, anything from a social security number to a little book that you have to turn around to a tattoo on your wrist. could be any, anything. This is a specific instance, and this comes at the beginning of the kingdom. In other words, what I'm saying to you is this is sequential. These three angels giving notice are giving notice about something that is happening then. And they're saying, all right, here's the last incarnation of the empire. Here's the last incarnation of the false church, whatever that happens to be. And oh, by the way, anybody who worships this beast, you're toast. And what I'm saying is this information is given to the whole earth by an angel in such a way that nobody misses it. So anybody that takes the mark of the beast will be in trouble after this notice is given. Again, did I say that so it made sense? Yeah, you were first, Tom. That's right. Great indoor sport to skulk around and say, all right, is this the mark of the beast? You know, are they sneaking this one in? Are they going to sneak up behind us and shoot a chip into our butt while we're not looking? And are we going to be damned forever? You've, you've heard all that stuff. What I'm saying is this is something that you will do voluntarily. You will give worship to the beast voluntarily. And if you do so after this formal notice by God saying that right there, that's it. That's the beast. That's the one I'm talking about. Him right there. And if you now give him worship after having received that notice, then God says, you're not one of mine. Now, there have been people who have been sucked into the empire business all throughout history. And they have been convinced by the harlot, whoever the incarnation of the false church is, that it's okay. And what I'm suggesting to you is those people are not what is being talked about here. Because one of the things about exile, we're all in exile, is that we're dealing with a closed book. Remember in Isaiah 29, it says, what I'm going to fix and send you guys into exile. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to shut down your prophets, I'm going to shut down your seers, and I'm going to close the book. And the reason I'm going to do that is so that you don't turn and be healed and I can't send you in exile because you're going into exile. That's the way it is. So while we are in exile, while you've got 10,000 different sects who read the same passage of Scripture and come out with 10,000 different explanations of it, there is tremendous confusion. And there are lots and lots of people who are very sincere and think they're doing what God wants them to do and are trying their best to do what God wants them to do, but they have been handed the gospel, Paul first or John first or something first, and they've been confused. They're not in rebellion. Okay, 
The people here in Revelation who are told, that's it, don't do that, those people who then worship that beast, they are in rebellion. There's a big difference between deception and rebellion. Again, did I say that? So it made sense. And if you can sort it out, believe me, God can sort it out. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah, good, good point. The comment was, this is the last notice for those who have been deceived. Because there are going to be lots and lots of people who will be deceived. And so what God is saying is, all right, scales off of everybody's eyes. Look there. That's it. Don't do it. And if at that point you then say, I am going to go worship the beast, God says, you're not one of mine. It's over for you. Okay, so very good. Yeah, this is, this is the, the place where those who have been deceived have an opportunity to get off the train. Very good. Yeah, that's a good insight. I like that. Again, am I saying all that so it makes sense to everybody? You know, God is very big into freedom. And if you can figure out that somebody has been taught something all of his life, believes it sincerely, believes that he is truly following God, and is just wrong because he's been brought up that way, that's very different than somebody who looks God right in the face and says, I don't want you. And that's what's happened. That's what would happen after this third angel gives his warning. Anybody who goes there then basically is looking straight God straight in the face and saying, I don't want you. I want this. It, it's real important to understand. You don't need to be afraid. Great sport in the Christian church, you know, going around about half scared that they say somebody's gonna stun you and you're gonna wake up the next morning in the bathtub with a chip in your butt. And and what I'm saying is, that ain't the way God works. He will give you an opportunity, and he will make sure it's really clear to you, and you get to make a choice. You're not going to be tricked into hell. You may be be tricked into death. In other words, if you get tricked and you go off in the wrong direction, you may die. But that's different than what's being talked about here. Onward. Verse 12. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Yeshua. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Notice, from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. All right, again, if my model of of revelation is correct, And if I didn't think it was correct, I wouldn't be teaching it, but you know how that goes. So if my model is correct, that the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls are linear, sequential in time. One follows the other, and there's nothing allegorical about them. They're literal, and they just go tick, 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 tick. Now, you know, the tick, 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 tick may take place over so far 2,000 years, but they're still in sequence. So what that is saying is, if I'm correct, we had the resurrection at the seventh trumpet. We had the 144,000 show up with a report or, or either people in tow or a report, okay, we got them in Goshen, boss, they're safe. One or the other, I don't know which. So what we're talking about here is people who die from then on. We're not talking about people who are raised from the dead. I believe that happened at the seventh trumpet. But you're still going to have people die. 
they are going to take part in, the se- in what's the second resurrection. I mean, it's going to be their first, but it's the second of the resurrection. First one for them, but second one eternal. So they'll take place in that second resurrection, and they will be just fine. Okay? Because they have died knowing the Messiah. From now on indicates from the warning of the angels forward, we're talking about people who are going to die. Some of them are going to die in Messiah, and some of them are going to die worshiping the beast. And the ones who die in Messiah will take part in the second resurrection, as will the ones who worship the beast. Both show up in the second resurrection, but Yeshua is going to look at one and say, Lake of Fire, yeah, come on in. You're one of mine. And, oh, by the way, Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. So again, it really depends on what you do. Okay, Your deeds are very important. Verse 14. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. And I'm going to read the rest of the chapter, and then we'll talk about them together, because there's a second harvest now. 17. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire, and called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it in the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. And that, I think, is about 180 miles. 184 miles, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Okay, so we've got two harvests. We have two different beings who do the harvest. I am tempted to say that the one who does the first harvest is Yeshua. Because it is one like a son of man, and he's wearing a golden crown on his head, and he's sitting on a cloud. Okay, So you could make a reasonable inference that we're talking about Yeshua there. If you made a reasonable inference, you're talking about an angel there, I'm not sure I agree, but I don't think that you're necessarily out in left field. I just don't know. The second one is specifically referred to as an angel. So, again, we may be talking about Yeshua reaping the fields, the angels reaping the grapes. Now, where that takes you, logically, is to... um, Matthew 13, and I'm in verse 24. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seeds in his field, but while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? 
No, but he said, no, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time I will send the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. A couple of things here. The one in Revelation is in reverse order. If we assume that it's Yeshua who's doing the first reaping and that he is harvesting his own, in other words, he's harvesting wheat and not weeds, then the harvest of the wheat comes first in Revelation, whereas in the parable it comes second. On that basis, you would certainly be not unreasonable in saying, well, maybe that's not what's being talked about here. Okay? Especially since the second reaping in Revelation is not weeds, but grapes. So the metaphor has been changed on us. That one speaks back to what was being said sure. earlier. Yeah. Comment was that uh, if, you, if you take the harvest of the grapes in 1417, what it does is then refers back to the harlot who has made nations drunk with the wine of her fornication. So that, that makes perfectly good sense to me also. All I'm saying is that the, the parable that shows up in Matthew 13 of the two harvests, a wheat harvest and a weed harvest, you have, again, two harvests here in Revelation, and you can assume then a wheat harvest or, or a believer harvest, if you will, and the second one is grapes. So they don't correspond precisely, but that's the place that I go to understand what's going on. So now 15, chapter 15. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. Going back to my proposed outline here, you have the authentication of the king, you have the announcement of the king where he comes and takes ownership of the place, and now what you have is the king taking vengeance on his enemies. And that's what the seven bowls of wrath are. Verse 2. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and, his Im- and its image, and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands, and they sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Who are these people who are singing? No, no, no. These are not the ones that are under the altar saying, How long, O Lord? It is my belief that those have been resurrected. The sequence that I'm doing in my hypothesis here is the resurrection happens at the seven trumpets. So the guys that are, or the guys and gals or whatever they are, that are hanging out under the altar and are saying, we want justice for our blood, I am suggesting to you those got resurrected at the seventh trumpet. In other words, all of the righteous who are died before the seventh trumpet have been cleared out. We have no more stock of dead people except the wicked. So what we've got here, these are clearly also righteous people who die after that resurrection and they are awaiting the second resurrection. So what they're doing is hanging out, singing praises to God, which is a good thing to do, 
but they are awaiting the second resurrection, and, and, and I'm suggesting to you that that's the source of those folks. Yeah. All right. Let's, let's, let's take it in sequence. You've got the people hanging out under the altar that, 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 that are crying out to God saying, How long, O Lord, before you avenge our blood? Those were dead people. They were dead. Killed. Every one of them. Morts. Mostly dead. Completely dead. Those people were resurrected at the seventh trumpet. They came out of their graves and they joined Yeshua and during the thousand year reign with Yeshua they are alive in their resurrection bodies. In addition, believers who continue to be alive at the seventh trumpet also get their resurrection body, except they don't pass through death. Okay? So far, so good? People who are believers in Yeshua at the seventh trumpet do not raise from the dead because they don't die. They simply get their resurrection body on the spot. That's it will all be changed. So, at the seventh trumpet, all of the righteous who were in existence prior to that time now are with Messiah. You got the dead ones, you got the ones that didn't die, the ones under the altar, the ones in shale, everybody, all of them are raised from the dead, if, if they are saved in the Baptist sense. So then from there forward, you get this notice that says, all right, you who are left, don't take the mark of the beast. And so those who resist the mark of the beast and don't worship the beast, who then die they will not be resurrected until the second resurrection, which is after the thousand years. So they're dead, and they're sort of hanging out and got nothing better to do, so what they're doing is singing praises to God, which is a good thing to do. So I'm suggesting to you that the people here in Revelation 15 who are singing the song of Moses and giving praises to God are those who have died after the seventh trumpet, but do not take the mark of the beast. All I'm doing here is I am taking Revelation sequentially. And I am assuming that the things happen in the order that they're written down, except for the things that are obviously background and historical, like you know the birth of Yeshua from the woman who flees from the dragon. That's obviously historical at this point. So you've got these parentheses, if you will, that are background historical, but the things that are not parenthetical, I'm assuming are sequential. And they happen in the order that they're written. That's all I'm doing. I'm not, not doing anything weird. I mean, you may think that's weird, but that's, you know, it's just straightforward. This makes a lot of sense. I think so. Yeah. I mean, as I say, just, just read what it says, read it in order, and don't try and fake yourself out by getting some weird spiritual interpretation. Just read what it says. That's all I'm doing. I'm, I'm not doing anything tricky here. Okay? At least I'm not trying to. So let's go down to verse 5. After this I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with seven plagues, clothed in pure, bright linen, with golden sashes around their chest. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven bowls full of the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. All right, now where do we have the sanctuaries filled with smoke? 
you know, the dedication of the Mishkan, it smokes up and Moses can't even go in there. Then you have the dedication of Solomon's temple and it smokes up and nobody can go in there. Okay, so when the presence of God shows up in, in one of his tabernacles or temples, the place smokes up and all the priests have to stay out of there until the smoke clears. Okay, so this, this is again something we've seen before. Yes? Interesting. Well, that's very good. Everybody hear that? I'll say it again so it gets on tape. It's, it, it, it's a good insight. Structural note here that Ray just brought up. Chapter 15. You have the seven angels with the seven bowls of wrath, and then worship is offered by those who are awaiting resurrection. Then you have the seven angels again mentioned, and this time this place smokes up and worship is not possible until everything clears. I don't know what to do with that, but it's, it's an interesting thought. Back in verse 2. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image, and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of gold in their hands. And they sang the song of Moses. So these are specifically people who overcome the beast. And again, if I'm correct, that the resurrection takes place at the seventh trumpet, that's not what we're talking We're not talking about people who were raised from the dead. We're not talking about believers who are alive when Yeshua comes. So the only other group of people that you can deal with are people who resist the beast, don't worship, and are killed for their pains. Let's go ahead and stop here, and we'll pick it up at 16 next time. Please consider becoming a sponsor. Please visit crimsonthread.com purpose for an explanation of what we're doing and perhaps to become a sponsor. Thank you.